What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately, and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. My team and I help companies discover and articulate their purpose to thread it through culture and operations. We work with forward-thinking or forward-reaching organizations to develop inspirational leaders who create cultures where people actually want to come to work and do their best. And we provide programs like the Grab Your Gusto that enable individual team members to discover and unleash their passion and purpose at work to catalyze fulfillment, engagement, and productivity. You can learn more about how to work with us at EliseCortez.com or Gusto-Now.com. With us today is Rabbi Dr. Baruch Halevi, a.k.a. Rabbi B., who is co-founder and executive director of Soul Centered, a Denver, Colorado-based center for spirituality, meaning, and healing. He is a local therapist, Enneagram coach, inspirational author, motivational speaker, and serial social entrepreneur, having co-founded numerous social enterprise startups. Today, Rabbi B. primarily focuses on his work as a local therapist, that, that's meaning-centered psycho- psychotherapy, working with clients to discover deeper meaning in their lives, create a purpose in their work, and living a life of what his teacher, Dr. Victor Frankel, calls the defiant power of spirit, the subject of his forthcoming book, The Defiant Spirit. We'll be talking today about how his various life experiences have helped develop him and prepared him to do the work he does today, learn how he helps develop help develop his clients, as well as the various expressions of his passion and purpose across his life. He joins us today from Denver, Colorado, Rabbi B. Welcome to Working on Purpose. Thanks, Dr. Elise. It's an honor and privilege to be on a show that I've tried to listen to hundreds of episodes. So, which is which is really amazing. And uh, our listeners and viewers, I want to share with you that how I found this remarkable man. Uh, we are both logotherapists. We were attending the 23rd Victor Frankel World Congress where we were each presenting our work. And when I heard him share what he was doing, I absolutely, immediately while he was talking, reached out to him on LinkedIn. I said, hey, want to connect, want to talk to you. Let's Let's make it happen. So, uh, Rabbi B, it's really, really an honor to have you on the show. Well, the feeling's mutual, and I felt the same way. You presented, and logotherapy has so much to offer the world. It's just not quite presented as well as it needs to be. And then here came Dr. Elise with your um, amazing presentation, and I thought thought so much collaboration around conscious capitalism and logotherapy, so we can't go wrong. I'm excited. Yeah, exactly right. Great mix, a great stew between us, right? Um, all right, well, let's start with what you're doing today and then kind of work a little bit backwards because I really want to share with our, our listeners the, the, the work that you're doing today. And then I want to kind of peel back where it came from and why it came to be, how we got this person, Rabbi B. So first, if you would tell us what you and your wife, is it Aliyah? Uh, Ariella. Ariella. Ariella are doing through Soul Centered. Help us understand what are you two doing together? First, it's fantastic you can work together as a team. And what are you up to? Yeah, um, my father-in-law just calls us A and B because uh, he's not right. comfortable with the term. So A and B are just fine. But uh, <laughs> even my own mother now calls me Rabbi B. I'm like, Mom, call me B. 
Um, so be as <laughs> um, So yes, we started Soul Centered here in Denver, Colorado, about three years ago, just pre-pandemic. Great time to launch a business and uh, helping people find meaning and resilience and purpose in life. Um, we had relocated here from Israel, where we had been living for quite some time, and we came back here um, because born and raised in um, in America, and we're in Israel for a while. I'm happy to talk about that later, but really wanted to focus full time on helping people discover meaning in their lives. For about 20 years, I've been an ordained rabbi and about 15 of those years, a congregational rabbi. And as much as I loved, you know, kind of all of the extras that came along with being a rabbi, I, I was always primarily and passionately a counselor, a therapist. And so I eventually decided to do it full time. And my wife, Ariella, is a, a healer. She works in all kinds of alternative healing. She does a lot of generational healing with people. And so we thought, you know, it's time for us to really partner. Uh, we've been married for 23 years, so we've worked certainly as a partnership in the marital realm. Now we're doing it as um, business partners. And we work side by side, her clients looking more for healing, mine looking for kind of direction, purpose, and guidance, and established this in Denver, Colorado to do just that. As you know, the rest of the world, we um, rolled with it. We pivoted, as we say, in the entrepreneurial world. And now we're almost exclusively, like everybody else, online or, or by phone. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. Yeah. So so let's go back in time a little. One of the things I, I, I love to do, Rabbi B, is, is to really understand how it is that people end up doing the work that they do. And you've got a very, very unique story. Uh, mm -hmm. And it starts, you know, with what I maybe would call tragedy, you might call it something else, but um, you know, you have the experience that um, you lost both your grandmother and your father to suicide a long time ago. So I'm interested in how those experiences set you on your path and what they taught you. Yes, thank you. I am um, very open about it. Um, I wrote a book, Spark Seekers Morning with Meaning, Living with Light, I know. Um, Yes, I've got a copy. I've read it cover to cover. It's fantastic. It's so beautiful. And there's a few things I do want to actually unpack with that, by the way. It's gorgeous. And I just share that because I'm very comfortable with it. I actually made it a um, point to share this story because I think we ended up in, I ended up at the center of this story because my family didn't share um, what I call the dark silence of, of depression. I call them the dark D's, divorce, depression, disease, death. These things were unspoken in my home, in my community, especially in the era you know we grew up. And my grandmother had always struggled with depression, and we knew it. Um, we just weren't allowed to name it. And as my wife has taught me in her kind of spiritual realm, if you can't name it, you can't tame it. And it ultimately will devour you. Um, I think of that song by um, Simon and Garfunkel, Sound of Silence, Silence Like a Cancer Grows. And that's exactly what I watched in my family's life. My grandmother disappeared into that silence, um, ultimately completing suicide when I was 15. And I, and I say that was tragedy, as you mentioned, but it became tragedy, what I call compounded, because of the way my father um, dealt with it or didn't deal with it he basically recreated her example and we didn't talk about it. We weren't allowed to address it. And I watched my father slowly come undone over the next 20 years and ultimately following in his mother's footsteps. He threw away everything. He had a beautiful marriage, work, community, 
family, friends, and it just got smaller and smaller in logotherapy world. We call this reductionism. His world just got reduced and pretty soon it was a nothing and he disappeared into the silence. And when I was in my 30s, he also completed suicide. And I made a vow. I was a congregational rabbi at that point. And I, I made a vow, you know, in, in the Holocaust, after the Holocaust, we say never again. And that has a double meaning for me. It means never again will we allow a genocide to happen to anybody. But I will not allow a third generation um, to go down into the silence without giving it voice. And so that really set me on my mission to give voice, not only to myself, but to the people I lead and guide to find meaning in their lives. So that's really the voice that I think my father and grandfather and grandmother needed desperately, and they just couldn't find. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really attracts me to the work you, you're doing and who you are as a human being is just the depth of your soul and your experience that I just is so right there in the air with you. And that's why I wanted to have you on air to share you with, with listeners and viewers across the world who desperately need your message and your, your touch. Thank you so much. I, that's one of the reasons why I do love um, working on purpose. And I don't just say that to, um, to patronize you. I really have listened to not all of them, but I'm working my way down the list. Because my father was a businessman. I mean, that's how he defined himself. And then when he couldn't find what he was in need of, he, he threw it away and he went on a search for spirituality um, out there somewhere. And I see this a lot with business folks. And, and I'd like to talk a little more about you know, my journey into the business world. Because what I counsel, especially business people to do, is start where you stand. Right? Don't go looking for the spirituality, the answers out there. It's here. It's in his, it was in his marriage. It was in his business. It was in his life. And he just left it behind. And, you know, our, our teacher, Dr. Viktor Frankl, talks a lot about responsibility. And, and that's a spiritual pathway if you start looking at the responsibilities in your life. And I've just spent my adult life helping um, responsible people find their meaning and their purpose in their life and not having to leave it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk more about Dr. Victor Frankel. He is our common denominator. You and I are both logotherapists. And uh, I met him in 97 when I was starting my PhD, PhD program, which is interestingly enough, of course, when he was leaving us, that's when he died the year. So how did you find Dr. Victor Frankel and what does his work mean to you? Um, so I found him early on in my life. Um, I was uninspired Jew. I think I speak for a lot of Jews who grew up and just didn't speak to me. It was cultural identity, but it wasn't a spiritual identity. I walked away um, exploring every other ism under the sun, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Catholic mysticism, um, lots of different isms, hedonism. That one was fun. And <laughs> I, I, I'm a spiritual mutt. I really have had to draw best practice from wherever it comes from. I've never cared. But I think the best practice I ever found was that little book, Man's Search for Meaning. I can't remember how it got to me, but it found its way to me. And I knew the moment I read it, I found this kind of intersection of spirituality and psychology. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it just hits. I've never met anybody that the book and the philosophy doesn't resonate with. Right? Mm -hmm. It can speak anybody from all traditions. And I said, I wanted to be a part of that. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know logotherapy was a thing. And so I continued down the Jewish path. And then one day, uh, maybe 15 years later, I heard about logotherapy as a psychotherapy and, uh, and uh, actually a school of thought. 
And I decided about five years ago, I really want to formally explore it and become a logotherapist. And I would say I started about three years ago and then, you know, culminating uh, relatively recently in the diplomate in logotherapy. Um, but he's been a part of my journey for over two decades. And although I never met him, um, the most influential people in my life I've never met, they most of them have been dead for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And, <laughs> and they have been the most impactful upon my soul. And he's up there, top mm -hmm. five. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And and then we go another level of depth or a few more levels of depth. And before I go into that, just a sec, did you call yourself a spiritual mutt? I am a spiritual mutt. I love that. That's fantastic. A spiritual mutt. I'll take that all day long. I'm equally as uncomfortable in everybody's tradition. It's like <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that you said when you presented, which is part of the reason I so reached out to you, because I thought it was so incredibly compelling. You know that I've officiated one wedding now, and that, that was such a fantastic experience for me. You have officiated over 500 funerals, and you tell me that you prefer doing them over weddings. So I can't imagine what you have possibly learned through those experiences of being with 500 families plus. So I'm interested to learn just what has this experience taught you about humanity, about life? Yeah, good questions. I, I do want to contextualize. I, I prefer funerals over weddings. It's in the sense that they're easier <laughs> to the teacher of mine said mediate meaning. My job is in some ways to get out of the way in a funeral and to just create a framework for people to process the grief, the feelings. You know, with weddings, you have to create something out of nothing in this day and age. Most people have been married, um, even if it's not on paper. They've been together for a year, two years, three years. They've been living together. And so, like, the centerpieces become hyper-focused. And the ice sculpture and the, you know, the hors d'oeuvres and then the rabbi or the clergy is down the list somewhere. But with a funeral, tragically, but we all have to go through it, the hors d'oeuvres aren't a thing and the ice sculptures aren't a thing and nothing matters. It's all noise except for somebody to step into their life and help them harness the meaning that's there. The meaning of the moment, as our teacher would say, mm -hmm. and really just help them see it and process it and not drink from the fire hose, but kind of turn it down so they can process it. And that's infinitely easier as my role of a conductor in that situation. Um, so I prefer it in that sense. It's the most humbling experience I have ever known to be invited in to um, tell somebody's story. Uh, here's a great quote, Dr. Elise, you'll love this. A teacher of mine once said a long time ago, a person dies two deaths, once when their body dies and once when their story dies. And there's nothing we can do about somebody's physical death, but we can become a guardian of their story. We can defy death. This is the defiant power of the human spirit. I've defied my father's death because my children know his story and his story is being perpetuated, passed down from generation to generation. So to be invited into somebody's life posthumously, to start to frame their story, tell their story, hand it over to their loved ones so they can become guardians of the story, that's, that's the most meaningful thing in life. Oh, that is so beautiful, Rabbi B. That's so beautiful. And on that note, let's let our listeners and viewers just let that sink in while we take our very first break. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. 
We've been on the earth, Rabbi Dr. Baruch Halevi, we also call him Rabbi B, who is a co-founder and executive director of Soul Center, a Denver, Colorado-based center for spirituality, meaning, and healing. We've been talking a bit about his early experiences that have formed and shaped him and what matters to his life. After the break, we're going to start off by talking about his ventures in social entrepreneurship. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visualize for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. Before we get back to the program, I want to invite you to check out my book. It's called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause. It's on Amazon. I wrote that book to awaken readers to their passion and purpose and to help transform them into inspirational leaders who enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of business to all of its stakeholders. And I use the content as a basis for my vitally inspired leadership and the Grab Your Gusto programs. If you're just joining the program today, my guest is Rabbi Dr. Baruch Halevi, aka Rabbi B, who is a co-founder and executive director of Soul Center, a Denver, Colorado-based center for spirituality, meaning, and healing. He is a logotherapist, Enneagram coach, inspirational author, motivational speaker, and serial social entrepreneur, having co-founded numerous social enterprise startups. He's also the author of Spark Seekers, Morning with Meaning, Living with Light. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Lots of good stuff happening in that. So the next thing I want to get into, which is really quite delightful, I know you are a social entrepreneur and you've started several uh, multiple cannabis companies. Now that's not something we usually see in a rabbi bio, Rabbi B. So so talk about that. How did you get started in these ventures and what do they mean to you? Yeah, I don't know what was harder, breaking the news to my congregation or to my grandmother that I was going <laughs> into the cannabis industry. They both had pretty much the same response, which was, excuse me, you know, and they would say, did I hear that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. When I was a rabbi, congregational rabbi, I always felt like I was an entrepreneur trapped in a rabbi or a congregational lifestyle. I have always, um, I don't know, I guess felt confined by the nonprofit world. I mean, I don't think it's a great business strategy to lead with what you're not. We're in the business of not making profits. Like, why not? We should be making profits if it can mean being sustainable. We don't have to go spend those. We can turn them back into the institution. But why not create some financial viable model? I got tired of perennially begging for handouts, for scraps off the table of, you know, multi-million billionaires um, who, who, you know, they didn't run their companies this way and they wanted their synagogues, their nonprofits to be run in this kind of um, desperate way. And I just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So I gathered together a group of investors and said, can we rethink the model of nonprofit? And one of them said, I have a license to grow um, 
marijuana in Massachusetts, medical marijuana in Massachusetts, that's a mouthful. And it was 2015, well, maybe we can use this. At the time it was a nonprofit, um, that's how it was structured, the regs in, in uh, Massachusetts. And so we said, let's figure this out. We raised some pretty serious capital and we built out what is now the second largest cannabis company in New England. I'm ultimately taking it public, but we did so for the express intent of creating a funding mechanism for um, the synagogue, for other nonprofits. Mm. And I thought, this is an exciting model. Can we reimagine capitalism, creating conscious capitalism, as I know you're a big fan of and so many of your listeners? I, I saw this emerging opportunity around cannabis, so I called it conscious cannabis. Mm -hmm. Because how often in our lifetime do we get to watch the birth of an industry? Right? It was so exciting and it's changed. And part of that excitement also is what turned me away because it became so complicated with all of the changing dynamics and regulations. And it was hard enough to start a business, let alone corral these guys to do the right thing during the process amidst of the landscape of you know regulation craziness in the cannabis industry. But it morphed from that for me into another venture around social equity bringing social equity um, to an industry that is deeply fundamentally flawed. Most of the people who are in prison over cannabis um, are people of color. Most of the people who are making money in the legalized cannabis space are people who are white males. And we have to rectify that wrong. And we have this opportunity. And so my second venture into uh, cannabis was all around social equity. But both of those were amazing learning opportunities for me. Wow. A couple of things. Just wow. First, I love the creativity of it all. Talk about taking looking at a problem and going, how can we fix this? I don't want to beg for dollars to support my synagogue. How can I do this differently? I think that's brilliant. So you know who I get this from? It's not me. It's from the Bible, right? It's from Jesus. It's from Abraham. And these are these are entrepreneurs. Right? These are innovators. I mean, these are revolutionaries. Jesus was a revolutionary rabbi. Abraham and Sarah were the first, they're the founders of, of Judaism and later Christianity and Islam. They're the first co-founders. I mean, that's all it is. You read it, they're, they're called the 10 tests of Abraham. He failed 10 times. He pivoted 10 times. And it's just entrepreneurial roadmap, which is why, by the way, Israel's called the startup nation because it's built on this ethos of entrepreneurial spirit, which in the end is ultimately the salvation of the Jewish people. It's allowed them to iterate over and over for thousands of years. And so you kind of coalesce that in the Holy Land and there are more startups there per capita than anywhere outside of Silicon Valley for a reason, because mm -hmm. this stuff is at the heart of all of our religions and our being and our Bible. And it's just fun stuff, good stuff. Okay, and that raised me to the second point. The second point is, I think it's so delicious and divine that here you are, this very passionate man who is a is a social uh, entrepreneur and and has this ability to create something, you know, really dynamic that 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 is is very scalable and impactful. So you're you know you're a, you're a very innovative, creative businessman, and you have this still this beautiful soul about you that uh, gives access to to the people that you serve to help them be able to to find that meaning that you've been you've been talking about at the beginning of the show that 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 all exists in one package is pretty fantastic i think well oh, thank you you should talk to my wife she'll talk you out of that uh, okay yeah. she'll she'll disabuse me of that notion quickly get yeah, her on brings me back to her uh, yeah. all the time. 
get, get her on. Kids, so that's a very humbling experience. To, uh, yeah, well, I love that. And, you know, part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show, Rabbi B, lots of reasons, but, you know, I do like to be able to bring on some really you know, some deep thinking about that you know the nature of life and what are we what are we confronting what do we have available to us and you know not a lot of people can can touch it the way that you can so i want to get into some of your the work that you do and and, and bring it to life for our listeners but before i do it looks like you were going to say something um no keep going okay so um as i'm prone to do because as you know i read the the the, the, the books of my authors cover to cover. I did that for yours as well. And we'll look forward to your next one as well. But I wanted to, for our listeners, um, presence a little bit of this text that you write, because it's really beautifully written. And then I'd like you to speak to it because it, it really does speak to the, you know, the importance of, 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 of darkness and wandering. People think they, they want to avoid darkness and you don't, you embrace darkness. So this is what you write. For some of us, when the darkness descends, that is, we lose a loved one, we delude ourselves into thinking that if we run faster, we will outpace it. We believe that if we stop and enter that space, we will drown in a sea of sorrow. When we go to either extreme, indefinitely wandering in the darkness or avoiding it altogether, we lose access to the thing that can bring healing, transformation, purpose, and even blessing. We lose the opportunity to discover the sparks of light buried in the darkness of grief. These sparks are waiting for us to take hold of them so that we can carry them forward as we journey through from death's darkness to the life's light. I have come to understand that the darkness of grief is the most complicated experience we can, can confront and one of the greatest teachers we will ever know. By touching our darkness, we also touch our light. Mm. It is beautiful, it's not mine. It's Kabbalah, 2000 years old. Um, it's kind of Kabbalah Jewish mysticism 101. Um, mm -hmm. I do. So I'll take credit only for repackaging a really great package. And that to me is the mission of life. Um, if you had, if you say to me, be sum up the mission of Judaism, I think of all religion, certainly of the holidays that we're coming up upon with Hanukkah and Christmas, I would say it's to defy the darkness through illuminating light. That's it. That's what the journey of grief is. That's what Dr. Frankel's journey out of the Holocaust was, the rebirth of the Jewish people afterwards. That's what I counsel people every single day to, you know, as Dr. Frankel says, make the defiant power of the human spirit stand. Make your stand, stand your ground, right? And defy that darkness. And um, I really believe that that's the mission that we're all here to do. And we just need to be reminded of that mission because when you're pounded with the grief, with the darkness, with the suffering. It's not just with death. Like I just hung up the phone with somebody who's going through a divorce. Sometimes divorce can be even darker than death because the person's still here and you gotta watch them love and live and leave. And they just need a reminder to stand, make your stand and defy your darkness. And it begins with the spark. You know, you don't have to transform the world. There's, there's a great mystic Kabbalistic saying that says a little light dispels a lot of darkness. The moment you have one spark, and for our, my conversation with this person was, let's find one thing that's true, because divorce turned their world upside down, and everything seems false, and they start questioning everything. And so we found one thing that is true, their love for their child, which was a product of that marriage. Mm -hmm. And we just held on to that spark, and then we kind of built it, and we grew that into a fire, right? And we've been building that over the past few months, and it's walking them out of the darkness, and it's giving them agency power mm -hmm. Dr. Frankel talks about we all at the end of the day need the power to choose our response 
Yeah, we sure do. And and we also need to recognize that there there is there's a, there's not a, maybe not a reason, but there's there's substance and there's um, u- utility in suffering. I think that's the way I want to say it. So I think I might have mentioned to you that I recently watched a, a Ram Das documentary. And he said something that I wrote down because I thought it was fantastic. He says, suffering is the sandpaper that awakens people. Wow. And I've heard other people say that suffering, there's a certain richness in suffering. So it has a role in our lives and people want to want to want to want to smash it away or wipe it away. And yet it has it has some real utility. Can you speak to that? All things are born in darkness. I mean, a fetus is born in darkness. The universe, the Big Bang, was born in darkness. Plants, these underground, are born in darkness. Right? It's there's it's fertile in the darkness. If you don't have darkness, you don't have life. We can't live with the sun twenty four seven on us. It would destroy our world. Mm. So we live in a world. I was just writing about this. We live in a world that creates false light, right? Night lights. We plug in a night light as opposed to really just going into the darkness. My dad ran. He spent his entire life, what I call doing the vo- avoidance, avoiding, avoid dance, a dance around the void. And how much energy do we use dancing around the void, staying busy? Mm-hmm. How many people do you know who lose a loved one who, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm keeping busy. Like maybe now is not the time to stay busy. And who, mm-hmm. honestly, at least who the hell wants to be fine? Your loved right. one. Right. Go right. into it. Right? If, if you love them, go into the darkness, feel it, feel the pain and birth something beautiful out of it. But it's only out of the darkness you're going to find it. Mm-hmm. And along those those lines, another thing that you talk about that I think is so fascinating, and I got to believe this is something that gets factored into, into the work that you're doing today with your wife. Um, but you talk about, however it unfolds, wandering is a crucial step. Wandering is a crucial step. And you say it's a necessary transition period along the path from chaos to order, from powerless to purpose, and from darkness to light. Why? Um, why? That's a really great question. Um, because the mystical word for the name of God in the Kabbalah is... Um, Moses says to God, what's your name? And what's God going to say? You know, like, Bob? God says, eh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am that I am, right? I am. And it's actually, um, it's a, um, I forgot what it's called, an anagram. I was, I am, I will be. God is time, right? And when we're running, our culture doesn't like time. We don't know what to do with time. We don't know how to just be present. I watch it with my kids. Like, just same thing you see in, in your world. It's one screen to another screen to another screen. I'm bored. We were just in the car. They forgot his phone. I'm bored. I thought that is such a gift. Like, be bored. Just sit. Just be (laughs) present. Because there's no substitute for time. You know? And we have to just be present to what is. And so I think that the wandering has been a lost art. Um, Sue Monk Kidd has a great book called The Heart, The Waiting Heart or something like that. I don't know if you've read it. Amazing Mm -hmm. book about the the delicious, I've heard you use that word quite often, so now I'm using it, the delicious <laughs> aspects of time and just being present. And, and when a loved one dies, especially when a loved one dies, there's no substitute for just sitting in it and being. Mm-hmm. You know, when somebody dies in Judaism, you sit seven days called Shiva. Shiva. What are you supposed to do? Nothing. Just sit there. And it is the hardest discipline in the world to just sit and be present in the darkness. That's where the divinity is found. Mm. Stunningly gorgeous. And listen to that, if you would, listeners and viewers. Hang on to that. Let it chew that over as we go into our last break here. 
I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We are on the air with Rabbi Dr. Baruch Halevi, who is also called Rabbi B. He is co-founder and executive director of Soul Center, a Denver, Colorado-based center for spirituality, meaning, and healing. We've been talking more about his experiences of helping others come to terms with grief and with wandering. After the break, we're going to hear more on the same subjects. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. One other announcement I want to share with you. If you don't know, uh, the anthology that I spent the last two years curating is now out. It's published. It's called Passionately Striving and Why, an anthology of women who persevere mightily to live their purpose. It's on Amazon. What I love about that is I found 25 women from all over the world who shared their very intimate story of how they've discovered their purpose and what they're doing to serve from it. And the reason why I think it's so important is because it helps people to understand that purpose is available to anyone, anywhere, regardless of your social economic background, your culture, your language, or where you are in the world. And when we actually work from it, it does amazing wonders. So I hope that you'll find it inspirational and educational and come with us on the journey. If you're just joining us, my guest is Rabbi Dr. Baruch Halevi, also known as Rabbi B, who is the co-founder and executive director of Soul Center, a Denver, Colorado-based center for spirituality, meaning, and healing. He is a logotherapist, Enneagram coach, inspirational author, motivational speaker, and serial social entrepreneur, having co-founded numerous social enterprise startups. He's also working on his next book called The Defiant Spirit, which we'll have him come back and talk about. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So the next thing I want to talk about, which I think is just stunningly beautiful, you have a passage in your book on tears, Rabbi B, that I just think is great, and we have to go into it. So you tell a story where you say, and I'm going to read this again from your, from your book, it's a passage from your book, you say, we're moved by tears. The tears of a baby move us to take action. Watching a loved one or even a stranger cry moves us to empathy and compassion. I was sitting in a Starbucks and a woman burst in a torrential downpour of sorrowful tears. Suffice it to say that the cafe stopped and all attention was redirected toward this woman. Businessmen, nannies, children, and the delivery guy stopped in their tracks. There was a genuine outpouring of sympathy from people who were, seconds before, strangers. There's something powerful, mysterious, and holy in tears. Hmm. It's stunningly beautiful and so very true. Hmm. Yeah, I. Um, one of the reasons why I kind of left being a congregational rabbi is I couldn't feel the prayer. I couldn't feel that it just became to me a, a rote process. And I committed to myself long before that the moment that happened, I would walk away and go to wherever I could feel something. Because I, I watched the consequences of my father, my grandmother, my grandfathers live a life where they just held back their feelings. We didn't say what needed to be said. And I just never wanted to become that. And I could feel myself slipping into that. And 
I followed the tears. Um, those took me to Israel where my family and I relocated because we had such a passionate love affair with, um, with Israel. We moved there for a while. And they brought me back to counseling people because I found myself welling up with that emotion when I was really feeling people's pain and suffering and connecting to them again. But I think when we listen to that emotion, right, that's divinity. I don't care what you call this thing. That's uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. calls it the noetic. You can call it spirit. You can call it whatever you want. But whatever that is, follow that. It never leads you astray. It has, certainly hasn't led me astray. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'll say to that, uh, B, is that I have been on my own journey of I. I, they, I, I wasn't always able to access my emotions very well. I could express myself and I could I could say that and I could certainly shed tears when I got moved. But as I've continued down this path of doing the purpose and meaning work, my ability to access a fuller spectrum of human emotion is greatly increased. And so I can be hugely moved to tears when I get when I'm inspired or I see somebody else crying I can I'm, I'm right there with them and I love that I can I have access to that now and I don't know how much more there is I'm sure there's much more for me still to access now but I so much of the work that I'm doing inside organizations is also helping people to get access again to that and what I see so often be is that women especially they the ones that have been working in corporate America they have been so taught that to be successful they cannot shed a tear whatever they do and it's so sad. And I no, please bring back the humanity. It's so great. It's so important. So important. You know, the, the first words that Dr. Frankel said when he came out of the uh, camps, when he was liberated, it's at the very end of part one of Man's Search for Meaning. I'm sure many of your readers have read that amazing book. Um, if they haven't, they should read it. The first words he said are from a psalm. And it says, um, I'm doing it by memory, from the constriction I have called out to you, and from the expansion, you have answered me. And I feel like that's the, the, that's hell and that's heaven. If there is a heaven and a hell, that's it. To live a life of constriction, where we feel like our world is narrow and small, and we're compartmentalized, and we can't fully express, that's a that's a hell. And I've been in that hell where I can't express my feelings, or you know, I'm just missing my father, and we're not sharing and. To, to, to be able to expand is a divine experience. To open your heart when you see your children, your spouse, you, you're, on, you're working on purpose, right? There's an expansion and yeah. that's it. And we have to listen to the things that make us constrict and we have to respond to the things that help us expand. That's the journey. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to my next point that I want to talk with you about, my next question. I was very, very fixated on how you talk about your mother's transformation post-divorce. Speaking of expansion, could you talk to us a little bit about like the before and after of what you would, how you describe her? It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Some like sociological, psychological study to watch my father, who's kind of a traditional businessman of a previous era, on top, in charge, makes all the decisions. My mom typical kind of homemaker in a previous generation taught a very different set of rules. And then just to watch them totally flip-flop, I can't do it here on screen, and where in the end my father descended into, as we talked about, uh, his, his hell, and my mother ascended. And that's because she left this constricting, constrictive, narrow identity. And it wasn't easy. It was a lot of painful iterations, but she continuously put herself out into the unknown, 
you know, sometimes, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, as it said, and she had to. But here was a courageous woman who continued to grow, to reimagine herself to the point where she went from a typical kind of homemaker, if you will, in the previous generation to running a multi-million dollar organization, world traveler, doing amazing projects out in the world. And I just thought, what a gift that I had been given. Because, you know, you had said I witnessed tragedy and I did, but I also witnessed blessing. Mm-hmm. watching a mom show me there's an alternative path, right? You can always choose your own way. And that's what she did. Listeners and viewers, I hope you're taking that in and just really understanding the magnificence of the defiant human spirit, just really what we can do. It's it's remarkable when we can access that meaning and purpose and, and move, as, we, as you say, away from the constriction to the expansion. I just hope everyone sees that as a hopeless, enormous possibility for themselves and anyone they know. So next space I want to go into, which is really quite fascinating. I've only seen and heard a few people really talking about this. And the way, of course, you are doing it with your wife is is quite, quite beautiful. And so you say above all we need as individuals, above all else, you say what we need as individuals, organizations and communities is resilience. Mm -hmm. And you say when we have resilience, we can survive, even thrive in the face of life's greatest challenges, struggles and adversities. What we need is is the defiant human spirit. So say more if you would about why is this resilience so important and how is it that you're working on that today yeah of course that's a great question um so you know one of the reasons why i turned to dr frankel logotherapy is because it acknowledges that at the end of the day all life is circumstances we don't really control anything you know we live in an era where we have this this belief that we're in control mm-hmm. and i like to remind people i'm kind of that buzzkill that nobody really likes to invite to the cocktail party, even though it sounds great. You know, cannabis industry guy, I'm not that much fun because I'll, I'll remind people that you're not really in control. Like you're standing on a rock and it's whirling around a hot ball of fire called the sun and you got about 80 years until you die. How much control do you really think you have? So, you know, that's not exactly fun to think about, but the truth is we shut that out and we pretend like we're in control. We create all of these things. And in the end, Dr. Frankel says, but we are in control of one thing, our response to our circumstances, mm-hmm. and that's yours. And nobody gets to take it away from you, like my mom. She had everything stripped from her, and yet she continued to respond through an attitudinal shift, deciding how she was going to respond to her circumstances. And that's resilience, because nobody can take that from you. And I, I draw that from the Jewish tradition. I'm interested in Judaism because it has withstood the test of time and not just for Jews. What can we do with this to help other people deal with their adversity? Right? When the Dalai Lama um, had to figure out how to live outside of Tibet, he turned to the Jewish leaders and said, can you teach me how to help my people survive in the diaspora? And this was one of the things that the, they had to offer was, right, you can survive if you can adapt, if you can pivot, if you, the world, you know, Lily Tom, the world gives you lemons, make lemonade. The world said to the Jewish people, you can't be in banking or you can't, you can't own land. So they figured out how to deal in finances. You keep taking stuff away from a person, but they keep coming back with this um, invincible spirit over thousands of years. And so to me, that's resilience is no matter what the circumstances, I will be able to respond on my terms in my way. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's stunningly gorgeous and so, so important. And again, I hope listeners and viewers, what you hear in that is hope and possibility. 
Um, so, so to that end, I want to hear more about what you and Ariella are doing at Soul Centered. How are you helping individuals and communities and people or, and organizations? Sure, thank you. Yeah, so I guess back to, you know, to your last question, resiliency in a time where we have had our resiliency tested and I don't wish time. I don't wish a pandemic a pandemic upon anybody, but we had one. And so what's the choice? Either it's meaningless or it's meaningful. And we owe it to the pandemic. We owe it to those who died, to those who suffer, to make it meaningful, to make it worthy or worth something. And if we can learn from it how to become more resilient, to adapt, to prepare. I think your last guest in one of your podcasts talked about this is just the first of many pandemics or iterations and things that are going to come our way. And we can learn um, how to deal with these things. So Ariel and I work individually with folks, um, me with Logotherapy, Kabbalah, the Enneagram, really bringing tools into their life to consciously face the darkness, to take back their power so they don't have to live in fear of what's next, right? The nothing, what is, I forgot who said, FDR said, the, uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? Living in fear is worse than dealing with the fear. So how can you consciously go into the darkness, find new tools to go into the darkness, uh, create your why, understand your why, right? The power of why, he or she who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. Do you know your why? How many of your folks are running businesses with a why? clear mission statement, but they don't have one in their personal life. So when the, you know what hits the fan, how do you endure the how if you don't know your why? Mm -hmm. If I had a few more minutes, which I know we don't, I'd tell you my why. I have a three paragraph why. I say it every single day to myself. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna say it until the day I die, as Dr. Frankel says, till my dying breath. I work with people on a simple personal mission statement to match their business mission statement, because that's how you endure your how. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just quickly got to ask uh, in terms of the Enneagram because I love the Enneagram. I, I don't know if are you a two or are you a one? What are you? I'm an eight. You're an eight. You're the challenger. Wow. Okay. Good. On a good day, I'm an eight. On a bad day, my wife calls me an eight hole. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. I can't wait to meet her. Um, guess which one I am. You are a three. I'm a seven. Seven. The enthusiast, yeah. Three and seven have yeah. a lot in common. Yeah, yeah. So I love that you use the Enneagram. So, okay, so now we've got to quickly hear about your forthcoming book, The Defiant Spirit. Um, so talk a little bit about what you're trying, what you're going to try to conjure in that book. And of course, we've got to have you back because this is a teaser. Yes. Um, I have a real problem with the Enneagram. I'm certified. I teach it. I use it. But what I do is I teach people how to defy your number. You know, the Nazis tried to reduce Frankel and six million other Jews to numbers. And on Dr. Frankel's arm, he wore a brand 119104 because he wasn't a name. He wasn't a person. He was a number. Right. You can't murder people. You can murder numbers. He spent his life showing us that we can defy that reductionism, being reduced to our labels. And so the Enneagram is an opportunity to see where we react and to defy that because we don't have to live in reaction. We can defy my, I can defy my eightness. I try very hard and I can live all these numbers, but you gotta summons the defiant power of the human spirit or else you end up trapped as a number and you forget your name. Oh my gosh, that is beautiful. Uh, we have, I can't wait to read it and I can't wait to have you on the show. So just so you know, that's, you can run, but you can't hide. Uh, so we're out of time, but you know the show is listened to by people around the world. How would you like to leave them today? 
I would like to leave them with that idea uh, that in each and every one of us, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how dark it might seem, that there is always that spark, as you mentioned, that defiant power of the human spirit. Don't give up on that spark. Find it, one spark, a little light turns into a flame, into a fire, illuminates the darkness. Keep going and become a spark seeker. Rabbi B, it is such an honor to know you and to share you with listeners across the world who desperately need to hear your message and read your book. So thank you very much for joining for joining us today and for being in my life. Thank you, Dr. Lisa. Listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Rabbi Dr. Baruch Halevi, his books or the work he and his wife are doing at Soul Centered, start by going to mysoulcentered.org. Again, that's mysoulcentered.org. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a re-recorded podcast. We, on the, we were on the air with, with Dalia Zeb of Logotherapy Mina, talking about her tremendously inspiring ambition to spread logotherapy in the Arab-speaking world as a way to build nations. Our conversation showcases just what we can each do with our one precious life when powered by meaning and purpose. Next week, we'll be on the air with Dan McClure, talking about what he's learned over his 40-year career specializing in disruption and his roles as a choreographer of ambitious, messy change, reimagining complex systems in business, government, international aid, and society as a whole. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.